Well, I don't know if you know this, uh, but we as followers of Jesus Christ are a lot like rubber bands, like the one I have here on my fingers. Um, we'll hear a song like Graves in the Gardens. We'll hear a message. And God begins through the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to work in our hearts. And he stretches us and he shapes us and he moves us. Uh, we might spend some time tomorrow in the Bible and study it before we go to work and start our day. And God shapes us and stretches us through that. But here's what happens. I don't know about you all, but you may hear a message. You may hear about serving and you may feel stressed and say, you know what? I've heard that the kids ministry needs more volunteers. And I feel like God is asking me maybe once a month, once every other month to serve in the kids ministry. And I'm feeling like I'm being stretched. It may be something about you as a single or as a married where you feel like God is stretching you. But as the Holy Spirit puts work into you and you yield to the Holy Spirit and God stretches you, what you're going to find is this, probably the moment you leave these walls, enter your car, and that person cuts you off in the parking lot, you go from being stretched and shaped back to where you were before. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Nehemiah 13, and we're going to find out what do you do when you and I constantly face this temptation, this battle to revert back to old ways, whenever God is calling us to new ways and new things, how do we Fight that temptation to revert back to our old ways. When our flesh is telling us to do one thing, how do we combat that? And the answer is found in Nehemiah 13 as we wrap up this series in Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah 13, and we're going to discover what do you do when you feel like the Holy Spirit has stretched you, shaped you, called you to do something, called you to take the mountain, called you to serve, and yet the moment you leave this parking lot, the moment you wake up tomorrow morning, you revert back to who you were just 24 hours previous. Nehemiah chapter 13, we'll wrap up the series today that we've been doing for the past, I think, 12 weeks. Uh, in Nehemiah 13, this is what we're going to find. In Nehemiah chapter 10 from two weeks ago, uh, and thank you, Ryan Vincent, our youth pastor, for preaching last week. Uh, we found in Nehemiah chapter 10 that the people who had moved back into the promised land realize that the reason why we're in this mess, this problem, this pickle, this jam that we're in is because our forefathers and our ancestors, they disobeyed God. They remember it from Deuteronomy chapter 28. The first fifth of it says, hey, if you obey me and are faithful to me, you're going to be blessed. But if you're unfaithful to me and you disobey me, there's going to be consequences or curses. And they realized that the reason why they had been exiled into Babylon, then eventually Persia, and came back was because their ancestors disobeyed God. So in chapter 10, they recommit themselves, both the public officials, the government officials, the religious leaders, and the people, they commit themselves to doing, number one, family and marriage God's way. They commit to doing work God's way. And they commit to doing worship God's way. What does that look like? They commit to doing marriage and family God's way because they were intermarrying. As they were coming back into the promised land, many of them were poor. And so what they would do is they would marry people. And this is an interracial thing or intercultural thing. This was an interspiritual thing. They would marry people who did not believe what they believed because they had wealth and prominence. And it was their way of kind of moving up in society. And he says... That's not how it's supposed to be done. God has said that you're supposed to marry other believers. 
And then he says the issue of the Sabbath. He says, here's the Sabbath, this day that God gives you to rest, to worship and focus on him. And yet you have uh, violated the Sabbath. You've not kept the Sabbath. And he says, your forefathers and ancestors didn't either. So they recommit themselves to keeping the Sabbath, even if, even if people who did not hold the Sabbath would come and try to do business with them. And the last thing was this, they would commit to doing worship God's way. They said, this is my money, these are my resources, but they committed to, through their financial support, supporting the work of God, the worship of God, both in the temple and the people who worked in the temple. And that's what they committed to do in chapter 10. Now, in chapter 13, this is now two to 12 years later. We don't know exact time frame. Some people say it's between seven and nine years. So in chapter 10, they recommit themselves to doing marriage and family, work and worship God's way. But now by chapter 13, anywhere from two to about 12 years later, they have reverted. They've gone back to doing things their way. Look at verse one. On that same day, as the book of Moses being read to the people, the pastors found that said no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. Just hold your finger there. That's found in Deuteronomy 23, three through five. Verse uh, I was going to keep going. Uh, For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When uh, When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded before the assembly. Before this had happened, Eliashib, the priest, had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God and was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings of frankincense, various articles for the temple, and tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. So you notice this. You notice in verses 1 through 5, they have already forgotten Deuteronomy 23, this the thing they committed themselves to do. And notice if you remember this name, Tobiah. Tobiah was an Ammonite who opposed Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall. He was vehemently opposed to rebuilding the wall and having life go back to normal. And by this point, notice this, that Elishah, his relative, we don't know if it was an uncle or a cousin or what the relationship was. He says, even though the people of God, the religious leaders and the government leaders had committed themselves to collecting tithes to support the priests, he says the temple is empty where all the tithes should be kept. And what does Elisha do? He allows Tobiah to set up an apartment there. And he says there in verse uh, one and two, he says, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter there. So here's point number one. Reverting is a constant temptation in battle. Thus, we need constant reformation. Again, chapter 10, they say, hey, you know what? We're going to follow God and commit to doing worship God's way. But by chapter 13, some two to 12 years later, they already have neglected. They've, they've gone back. They have reverted to doing things like they used to do. And now they've allowed an Ammonite, Tobiah, to now set up an apartment inside the temple. In verses 10 through 12, we see the same thing. Turn to uh, Nehemiah 13, 10 through 12. I also discovered that the Levites had, been, uh, had not been given prescribed portions of food so that they and the singers who were to conduct worship service had all returned to work their fields. 
I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has this temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Jude began bringing their tithes of grain, you want olive oil to the temple storerooms. If you notice in chapter uh, 13, verse 10 there, he says, I discovered Levites have not been given their food and they returned to working the land. If you know Old Testament history, every single tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel were given land. The only tribe that was not given land were the Levites because they were dedicated to the worship of God and to the temple work. And so here it says, though, because they were not given the food that the people had committed to give them, he says, now they're back working the land. They're serving as farmers. And he said, they're not allowed to focus on the work of God. And then he says this in verse 15. In verse 15. He says, uh, in those days I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They're also bringing grain, loading on donkeys and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them selling their produce on that day. So he says, even the Sabbath has now been violated. He says in chapter 10, they committed to keeping the Sabbath and now they are doing work on the Sabbath day. And then finally in verses 23 through 24, he says, about that time, uh, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some of the other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all, which is... Uh, uh, Jew, uh, the Jewish language, Hebrew language. So I confronted them and called down curses on them. And notice this, I beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with pagan people of the land. So now they have even violated this commitment to marrying only other believers. Malachi, who's a contemporary of Nehemiah and Ezra, said it this way. He says that some of you have divorced your wives, that some of these men have divorced their wives, the wife of their youth, in order to try to marry up. They've met some Ammonites and Moabites who have wealth and prominence, and they said, I'm gonna leave my wife, though she believes like I do, in order to marry this other woman. He says, that's what's going on here. And this is how bad it got. He says, uh, verse 28, one of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sambalot, the Horonite, so I banished him from my presence. If you remember, Sambalot was another one who opposed the work of Nehemiah, he says, even the relatives of some of the priests, the high priests, were now intermarrying. So again, chapter 10, we commit to doing marriage and family God's way. We commit to doing work God's way. We commit to doing worship God's way. But by chapter 13, some two years to 12 years later, they have reverted back to their old ways. And I think this is a lesson for all of us in here that again, just like the rubber band, you may say, we commit to doing things God's way. We're gonna be shaped and molded by God. We're gonna do it your way. But given enough time, as we cease yielding to the Spirit, we revert back to our old ways. Galatians chapter 5 says it this way, that you and I as believers, there's a war going on inside of us. And this conflict, this battle is between the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and our flesh. The flesh is not this flesh right here, but the flesh is that immaterial part of you that tries to still live a life independent of God. To try to have your needs met independent of God, to try to have your wants met independent from God to try to have your identity and security met independent of God. He says there's that constant battle going inside of us. So that's why when you come to a worship gathering and you hear the, the message and you are in God's presence worshiping him and you feel stretched, the moment you leave this place, 
you often revert right back because the flesh says, come on back. Come on back. Do it like you've always been doing it. Here's a thought. Uh, it's about 90 days into the new year. How many of y'all made New Year's resolutions? New Year's resolutions. Anybody make New Year's resolution? It's estimated that 80% of people who make a New Year's resolution saying, you know what? I'm going to start reading the Bible every day. I'm going to pray for 30 minutes at least every day. I'm going to memorize Romans chapter 8. You make these commitments on January 1st. But what happens by March 28th? You revert right back. And so that's why there's a constant need for reformation and restoration. It isn't just come Sunday and then by Monday morning things are great. It's something that we have to do on a constant and regular basis because we have the flesh the world, and even spiritual warfare, the devil who's going to oppose us being molded and shaped by God. It requires you to say to the Holy Spirit, keep your foot on the gas. Ephesians 5.18, be continually, perpetually filled with the Holy Spirit at all times because you want the Spirit to continue to stretch you and grow you and shape you because as soon as the Holy Spirit lets off the gas and you go back to allowing the flesh control things, he says, you will revert back. And that's why all of us in here, if we're honest with ourselves, need constant Reformation, constant restoration. But notice this. Go back to Nehemiah 13, verse 6. Nehemiah 13, 6. He says, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I, uh, though I later asked his permission to return. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Eliashib, uh, Eliashib's evil deeds and providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of, out of the room. Then I demanded the rooms be purified and brought back the article for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. So he says, you know what? You committed to doing worship God's way. You've given Tobiah an apartment here in God's temple. And imagine it's almost like a scene from a movie. He tosses everything out in the streets. He says, now purify and cleanse us and have the grain offerings and all the stuff brought back in to its proper place. Uh, he says in verse 13, I assigned supervisors for the storerooms, Shemaiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah one of the Levites, and I appointed Hanan, son of Zakur, grandson of Mataniah, and their assistant. These men had an excellent reputation. Uh, you can, I think the word there can be also translated faithful. They were faithful men. And it was their job to make honest distributions to their uh, fellow Levites. And he says this, remember this good deed, oh my God, do not forget all that I have faithfully done for the temple of my God and it services four times Nehemiah prays in this section in chapter 13. It's a prayer of saying to God, remember me. Now, here's the thing. God is omniscient. God knows everything. God does not forget. So you don't need to remind God, hey, God, would you remember me? What he's asking God for, and that word remember is the word zakar in Hebrew. We get the Hebrew name Zechariah, which means God remembers. We get the English name Zachary from it. It means God remembers He's not saying, God, remember me because I think you're going to forget me because I don't believe you're omniscient. What he's asking God for is help. That's what he's asking God for. So when you say to God, God, would you remember me? You're not saying, God, don't forget about me. You're saying, God, when you see me and I'm in need of your help, please come help me. Literally, God, remember your boy. That's what we're saying. So here's the thing. Here's point number two. If we've committed to obeying God's word, then we must hold one another accountable to obeying God's word. We've got to hold one another accountable to obeying God's word. He says in verse 17, so I confront the nobles of Judah. Why are you profane the Sabbath in this evil way? Wasn't just, this, uh, just 
this uh, sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us and our city. Now you're bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to, uh, to be desecrated this way. Then I, committed, uh, then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be open until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of ways, uh, wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I spoke sharply to them saying, what are you doing out here? Camping around the wall. If you do this again, I will arrest you. I think some translations I love to say, I'll lay hands on you. He was willing to lay hands. And that was the last time that they came on the Sabbath. Then I command the Levites to purify themselves, to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Again, remember this good deed also, oh my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. So he says, you know what? I need to hold y'all accountable to doing work God's way. And we've read this verse already in 25 through 27. He says to the people who are intermarried, he says, you know what? Do not intermarry. And he actually pulls on their hair. This is how serious it is. And if you're thinking like he literally grabs somebody's hair, most likely Isaiah 50, I think it's 21, says this, that the pulling of the beard the pulling of the beard was a sign of like, this is serious, like stop doing this. It'd be like this if you grew up with a mom who'd pull on your ear, like when you were in trouble, she'd pull on your ear. That's what he was doing. He's saying, hey, come here, let me talk to you. Do you know what you're doing? Just recently, your own people have committed to doing marriage and family God's way, and you're already violating that. God takes us serious. If you remember in chapter 10, he says, God, if we obey you, please bless us. And if we disobey you, curse us. Give us the consequence. He says, do you know what you're asking God for? And so he is holding the people accountable to obeying God's word. And you know what, y'all? This is the purpose of the worship gathering. This is the purpose of the family of God. This is why you're part of a church like Bayou City Fellowship. This is why you're part of a community group that you have people around you, brothers and sisters in Christ, who love you enough, who love the glory and reputation of God enough that they will hold you accountable to obeying God's word. They love you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your spouse. They love you enough when they see your marriage slipping and tripping, they're gonna hold you accountable. Here's what Joe Dumar said, the NBA Hall of Famer. He says, good teams have a coach that holds them, the players accountable, but great teams have players that hold other players accountable. And I believe that this church, along with every church, can be a great church because we are willing, because we love one another, to hold one another accountable. There's a book written by Patrick Lencioni called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Anybody read that book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team? And I think, uh, I love Lencioni. He's a, a Christian Catholic. He's been on a lot of Christian conferences talking about leadership and teamwork. And he says, number four, the number four dysfunction is this. Avoidance of accountability. Teams, corporate teams, ministry teams, churches that are dysfunctional, that are not healthy, one thing they lack is accountability. And the reason why I believe is this. For many of us, many of us we want to be liked. We want to be liked. Rather than saying, you know what, I want to be liked and admired. That's what I want. But I trade that in for what I would call to be loved. I want to love somebody, to unconditionally be committed to their well-being unconditionally committed to seeing them flourish in their walk with God. And thus, I'm going to ask them to hold me accountable. It's a two-way street. 
but also I'm going to hold them accountable as well. And that's what we see here with Nehemiah. Nehemiah says, I am only holding you accountable, you all, to what you committed to doing in chapter 10. Marriage and family God's way. Work God's way and worship God's way. You are the ones who commit yourselves to God and now as a family, I'm gonna hold you accountable. So this is my ask as your pastor that we would hold one another accountable. That's the purpose of baptism. That's the purpose of a marriage ceremony. It's a public way of us saying, hold me accountable as I hold you accountable because we're in the family of God. I wanna see you grow. I know you're like that rubber band that you're gonna be stretched and make commitments and you're gonna wanna revert, but I'm willing because I love you to hold you accountable, and I'm asking you to hold me accountable as well. But here is the problem. Here's the problem. If you look at Malachi and you look at through the 400 years of silence, eventually the people of God began to revert back to their old ways again. There was a silence from God. And so this is what they were ultimately waiting for. If you would turn with me to Malachi, the very last book in the Old Testament. So find Matthew and then turn one book over. Malachi is a contemporary of Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah was a great reformer and restorer. He kept his foot on the gas. He had the physical restoration of the walls, the physical restoration of the economy and temple worship. He, he did all that. And then he and Ezra teamed together to provide the spiritual reformation and restoration but again, he departed for two to, two to 12 years and saw everything had reverted back to the old ways. He says this, Malachi chapter three. Malachi chapter, Malachi chapter three, verse one. Look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you're seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you seek for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Look at chapter four, verses two and three. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. On the day when I act, you will tread upon the wicked as if they were dust under your feet, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So this contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, Malachi, the prophet says, Hey, Nehemiah, Ezra, God used them to enact some great reforms to restore what's going on. But ultimately, there's one who's coming who will be the great reformer and restore. That is the one, not even that. He is the one, this son of righteousness that you are waiting for. And that's why I think it's appropriate that we end Nehemiah on Palm Sunday because that one, the man, Jesus Christ, has come. So here's point number three. The people of God were waiting on the ultimate restorer or the ultimate reformer. They were waiting on that one to come. And next week, we're gonna look at Daniel chapter nine. I encourage you to invite your friends and neighbors and coworkers to come and worship with us because they will hear about the reformer and restorer who has come that can restore and reform things that you and I cannot restore. No amount of money can restore. No amount of counseling can restore. Even though counselors are great, no amount of any of those things can restore, but the reformer and restorer has come. And so here's a big idea for today is because we revert back to our old ways, the flesh is a constant nagging thing. We need a restorer and reformer. You and I need a restorer and reformer. 
And that's what the message of Nehemiah ends on. It doesn't end on a high note like things, the people lived happily ever after. He says, they went back to the very same things their ancestors are doing that got them into the mess in the first place. But you know why? It's because they were having a hope and a wait for this ultimate one, the restore reformer to come. And that's why Malachi says he's coming. He's gonna restore sons of their fathers and fathers of sons. He's coming. The restore reformer is coming. And that's who we'll highlight next week. So I invite you as we start Holy Week, we have Monday, Thursday, this Thursday, April 1st at 7 p.m. We'll go through the seven last sayings of Christ. And then on Good Friday, we'll have silent communion from seven to eight. You can come and go as you please. We're gonna have communion and you can reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then next Sunday, 7 a.m., we'll have a sunrise service outside these doors, uh, weather permitting. So again, invite your friends to that. And at nine and 11, we'll have our indoor and nine o'clock will be online as well. So I invite you, those who are online, to come next Sunday and invite your friends to worship with us as well. Um, is there anybody in your life that you know, have met, perhaps that is a celebrity in your life, that if you told other people that you met them or saw them, they'd be like, who is that? Like if you uh, in here, how, how many of y'all know who Darren Woods is? Anybody know who Darren Woods is? Darren Woods. If you were riding in an elevator at ExxonMobil and all of a sudden like Darren Woods is standing right next to you, you come home and say to your spouse if you're married or maybe your roommate and say, guess who I was in the elevator with today? Darren Woods. And they're like, Darren who? Who's Darren Woods? If you know, Darren Woods is the CEO of ExxonMobil. Pretty, pretty big deal if you're in an elevator with them. Or how about this? Perhaps you are going by the Cynthia Woods Pavilion in the Woodlands and you hear this music playing and you realize that it is Pat Green. How many know who Pat Green is? Right? You may tell some friends, Pat Green. They're like, who's Pat Green? Right? You say, if you love Texas country music, you know who Pat Green is. Well, several years ago, uh, the NBA sent all the chaplains. Two years ago, the NBA sent all the chaplains to Charlotte. And so we were there in Charlotte, North Carolina, to do some training, uh, to be better chaplains, to serve the players and coaches and the staff. Along with that, they gave us tickets to every single all-star event that they had, the dunk contest, three-point contest, the games, all the stuff, the freshman, sophomore challenge, tickets to all the events. And on the Sunday of the all-star game, we actually got to go to all-star chapel. And so there we are with all the chaplains and there's all these former players and former coaches and other celebrities are there. And I'm sitting next to my wife, she's here to my right, and then one seat over from me is Michelle Ree. Anybody know who Michelle Ree is? If you know Michelle Ree, anybody? Okay, no one knows who Michelle Ree is. All right, so she, in my world, is a celebrity. She's a Korean-American educator, and she's married to Kevin Johnson. For those of you who remember Kevin Johnson, he's an all-star point guard, and now he is the former, I'm sorry, he's the former mayor of Sacramento. And Michelle Ree is the star of the documentary Waiting on Superman. Anybody seen Waiting on Superman? Okay, five of y'all, great. All right. I'm a big documentary junkie. Um, so if I can encourage you all, I think you can watch on Netflix and on Amazon and some other sites. Came out about a decade ago. Waiting on Superman is a documentary about how many of our large urban school districts are failing our children. Many of our large urban school districts across the United States are failing our children. And they're really just dashing their hopes for future success and a job and all that. 
because these school districts are failing, on our, are failing our children. And so this documentary is called Waiting on Superman because all these school districts, New York, Chicago, Washington, D.C., uh, L.A., they're waiting on some superintendent, some chancellor to come in like Superman, sweep in, come in, and have all these reforms and clean everything up so that our kids can have a great education and the hope for a great future. All these school districts are waiting on Superman to come fly in and reform the school districts so our kids can have a better education. And so what this documentary shows is Michelle Ree, who becomes chancellor, basically superintendent of the Washington, D.C. public school system. And what she does is try to reform the school system, improving pay and benefits and all this stuff and closing schools and opening schools, doing all this stuff, trying to reform the school district so that the kids have a better education. But what the documentary shows, even though she's brought in by the mayor of Washington, D.C., that mayor was only elected for one term. Eventually, Michelle re-resigned because she had so many hurdles and obstacles. And so the movie says, this fallacy of waiting on Superman to reform a school district is wasted. It's going to take much more than Superman to come in and save the day. But you all, in contrast, I don't know about you all, but this world system that we live in is failing us. This world system that says you can have a life you can make a life. You can have fulfillment and purpose and meaning apart from God is failing us. But you know what? The good news is this. The message of Nehemiah, the message of Malachi is all of us in here have been waiting for Superman. And this Superman that's coming is able to save the day, is able to reform and offer hope and purpose and meaning. And the reason why he's a Superman is he's super because he's God. Colossians 1 would say he's God that holds all things together. John 1 would say that he is the word who became flesh. He's God in the flesh. And he's also man because he is flesh. And so this Superman we're talking about, this reformer and restorer that the people of God, the Jews are waiting on, has come. And that's why we sing with palm branches. And there's no cute kids today. They're all next door uh, because of COVID and all that. But that Superman, Jesus Christ, has come. And that's who we celebrate this week. Let's pray. God, we're all like this rubber band. We're like the ones who we hear a message, we spend time in your word, we go to Bible study. And God, you stretch us as we yield to the Holy Spirit. You shape us into the image of Christ. You challenge us, you convict us. God, you tell us to say no to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily. But God, we have the constant temptation and battle of reverting back to our old ways. We have the constant battle of temptation and deception from the enemy. So God, we are waiting on this reformer restore as prophesied in Malachi that the sun of righteousness will shine on us. The sun of righteousness will warm us. And God, that's who we glorify today. That's who we radically focus on today, God, Jesus Christ, the one who the palm branches were laid on the streets and the cries were made, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
God, we are grateful that you have sent Jesus Christ, our restorer and reformer. Great as Ezra and Nehemiah were, they could not do what Jesus Christ did. And God, as we prepare this week, a holy week, to celebrate our resurrected Savior, the super man that has come. God, would you be at work in our hearts now? Would we truly be always filled with the Holy Spirit? The third member of the Trinity that now dwells in us. That fellowships and stirs in our spirit that was once dead. And God, would you stretch us and shape us and mold us God, as we are worshiping you, as we hear your word, as we spend time studying your word, as we're at gathering generations tonight, as we're in community group, as we're sitting in our cubicle, listening to a podcast on our lunch break, as we're out for a run or a walk, listening to a podcast, as we're listening to the audio Bible, God, would you stretch us and shape us Because God, we know we constantly battle reverting back to our old ways. Would the Spirit be at work in us? God, would your word be that mirror that shows us where we fall short? God, as we look into the lives of others, our spouse, our roommate, our friends, and God, you show us even more just how selfish and broken we are. Master, I pray that your spirit would be at work stretching us and shaping us and restoring us and reforming us. And again, God, we are so grateful that Jesus Christ, our restorer, our reformer, has come. And God, we celebrate him today and we lift him up today and we worship him today in preparation for this start of Holy Week, God. God, would you place on our hearts right now and be at work in the lives of family members and coworkers, ones that don't know you, neighbors, people that are parents on the same softball teams as our kids and soccer teams as our kids. God, that we can not just invite, but also say, hey, I'm willing to pick you up next Sunday at 8.30, 8.45, at 6.45, at 10.50. To come and worship on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Come as you are. Nice clothes, tattered clothes, jeans and a t-shirt. God, would you place on our hearts and our minds now and be at work even in their hearts now people that we can invite to hear about the resurrected Savior who is able to restore and reform things that no amount of money, no surgery, no medicine, No counselor can restore and reform. And Master, we ask you all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Hey, I wanna invite the prayer team to come on up on my left and right here. Uh, If there's something that we can be praying for, I invite you to pray with them. Also, we have an app, and on the app, you can submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Our elders pray every Thursday morning at 6.15. And we pray on this Monday, Thursday at 6.15 a.m. We'd love to join you in prayer. So if you have a prayer need, 
please come up to the front and uh, our prayer team would love to pray for you and with you.